0: So even within Buddhism, it was a Buddhist in Japan who unleashed nerve gas in the Tokyo subways. Now, that was an extraordinary situation. That was a totally imagined war. The prophecies of Shoko Asahara, the leader of the Aum Shinriko, imagined that there was going to be a great war, a great end of time, a great Armageddon, you know, a battle between good and evil and right and wrong. At the end of the world, and then Aum Shinriku was going to take over, they'd already created a new government, different branches of government that were were going to rule as soon as the war was over. And it frustrated uh, the members of the movement, uh, Shoka Asahara, and the followers, just as it frustrated Mahmoud Abulima, who bombed the World Trade Center in 1993, that we didn't see it, that the world didn't see that the, war, that the war was coming. And so, in this fateful day, when six trains were converging in the subway to Kasumigaseki Station, which is the deepest subway station in Tokyo, a subway station that was supposed to be safe in one of Master Asahara's prophecies just the year before, He has said that particular subway station, Kazumi Kaseki station, which is close to the Diet in downtown Tokyo, even that station wouldn't be safe enough once World War III began to occur. And the most horrible, devastating kind of weapons, including sarin gas, he said this in his prophecy a year before this incident happened. But on this fateful day in 1995, as these six trains were converging on this station, there were six members of the Aum order on each of these six trains. so they put down a package on the stop right before the train was about to come to this kasumi Kaseki station. It was in a brown paper bag. And they also had with them umbrellas with pointed sticks. So as the train was about to leave the station and go on to the next kasumi Kaseki station, they tossed in that package with the paper sack. They used their umbrella to pierce threw the plastic inside the paper sack. They jumped off the train just as the doors closed. And the trains then went rumbling in towards that central station. And people began coughing and spitting up blood and began uh, writhing. Some died on the spot from this horrible sarin gas, which in its undiluted form would have killed hundreds of thousands. But because it was a diluted form, killed only a dozen or so and injured uh, thousands more. It was the only time... In recent forms of religious terrorism were a weapon of mass destruction. In this case, sarin gas was used. And it was used in order to make a point about an imagined war, a great battle that Asahara thought was coming. Now, some of the struggles, of course, are much more political. One didn't have to imagine the war that was a part of the Islamic Revolution in the 1970s, even before the Sikh movement began. It was this movement led by the Ayatollah Khomeini, which was also essentially a critique against the secular state? What they were opposed to was not just the corruption of the Shah and his collusion with Western forces, but it was also a mindset. I remember visiting Tehran before the revolution. It seemed like a wonderful place, it was full of life, of bars, and reminded me of San Francisco. Exactly. The Mullahs looked at Tehran and said it reminds them of San Francisco also. And the Ayatollah Khomeini railed against what he called West-toxification, a kind of inebriation with things Western. So the revolution was meant to purge society of this kind of Western fascination, as well as to purify what he thought was a politics that was deeply corrupt and immoral to the core. And if you believe that the politics is immoral, what better way to counter that than with a morality from that most traditional vessel of moral vision, religion. And so the revolution of in Iran has been and continues to be a kind of challenge to a different kind of politics. Contentious, of course, contentious with even in the movement and there have been leading Islamic theologians such as al-Karim Sharoush from the University of Tehran, who criticize the mullahs for getting involved in politics. And think the time has come for the clergy to get out of politics in Iran for the sake of religion. It's muddling up the purity of the Islamic faith. But nonetheless, even Sharoush believes that the Islamic revolution was essential. It was important to make a stand for a different kind of culture, a different kind of nation in Iran, one that was true, in Shrews' mind, to its own values. In Afghanistan, the war against the Soviet Union was, of course, not really a war against communism, as much as a war against external control. And what, of course, terrible paradox it is the United States, who at the time of the Mujahideen uh, when they were fighting against the Soviet Union were great supporters of the Mujahideen at that time. There's a, uh, there's a picture, there's a woman in the uh, CNN uh, series on the Cold War with original footage from uh, the Afghan war that shows Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, climbing up on a tank in Afghanistan and shouting out to the Mujahideen with a loudspeaker, fight on, fight on for Allah. Can you imagine Condoleezza Rice? Can you imagine uh, Hillary Clinton pleading with the Taliban to fight on, fight on for Allah? Well, of course not. But at that time, they were fighting against those godless commies. We were quite happy to see the Mujahideen fighting, not realizing, of course, they were just fighting against external alien forces, as they continue to do even so today, which is why the American presence in Afghanistan is ultimately an unwinnable kind of situation, and how the tragedy of American young people, and as I read in the newspaper this morning also, Australian young men perishing uh, in that situation is is truly a tragedy. And that, at least uh, in my mind, until there's some sort of a negotiated settlement with those elements of the Taliban that can be negotiated with, because the Taliban is a complicated organization, if if an organization at all. There are at least 27, 29 different groups that can be called Taliban. Some are tribal leaders, led by tribal leaders, some by thugs, some by religious extremists. But there are some that you can deal with and negotiate with. And that needs to be our strategy. And although I was dismayed that President Obama initially said that he was going to increase the number of troops in Afghanistan uh, and has continued that pledge, uh, more recently he's talked about negotiating with elements of the Taliban, which I think is absolutely the right struggle, because their war is not ideological. It's against foreign intruders, as it always has been. And they see it in that sense as a sacred struggle. There's always been this tension in many parts of the Muslim world in seeing the very artifact of the nation state as a western intrusion.